In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has descended. This is the 36th sermon in a series of homilies on the Divine Liturgy of the Holy Orthodox Church. So for this entire year, I've been preaching basically on what the liturgy means, this service that we're participating in, and how we can enter into it more fully. So the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this exhortation from the priest before we receive Holy Communion. He comes out with the chalice and says, In the fear of God and with faith and love, draw near. And so I promised I would preach three sermons on these three aspects of our approach to the Holy Chalice. The fear of God, faith, and love. I already broke my promise because I preached two sermons on the fear of God. I could preach a whole bunch on faith, too, and also on love. You think about those three words, fear, faith, and love. All three words have so many meanings, especially when you talk about our life in Christ and the church, spiritual life. So many different types of fear, so many different types of faith, and so many different types of love. We want to make sure that we have all the right ones in good measure. So we started out with fear, and that's how the exhortation begins. And of course, the scriptures say that the beginning, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We always start with fear. And so we're going to look today at faith. Before I do that, just briefly about fear. We properly begun, began by talking about the fear of God. You think about, think about the ocean. Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean. In fact, my family and I are getting ready to go on vacation, leaving this Friday, and we're going to be there at the Atlantic Ocean, the great Atlantic Ocean. When you stand in front of the ocean, the first thing I think we should all have is fear, healthy fear, because of the power, the greatness, the immensity of the ocean. All, in fact, all the great wonders of the world inspire this fear. Mountains, forests, canyons, waterfalls, rivers, oceans, and other geographical features. They scare us with their immensity and their power. So the best way to approach the ocean is with fear. But to really experience the ocean, we need to get in it. Get our feet wet, so to speak. And that's where faith comes in. Even though we fear it, we also trust it to a point. And even though we fear God, 
And he is greater and huger and more immense and more powerful than all of these physical things. Even though we fear him, we also need to enter into life with him and we have grown to trust him. We've grown to trust him. Even though we fear him, we trust him. Because we have entered into life with him and found that everything he does for us is soul-saving, is good for our souls. Trust grows over the years as we walk with him. And he proves to us over and over that he means only good for us and not evil. The reception of Holy Communion is the ultimate expression of this trust. In one of the pre-communion prayers we pray, may I not be burned as I touch to my lips the fiery ember of Christ's precious body and blood. So when we talk about faith, there are three aspects that I want to talk about today, and there are many other definitions of faith, but I want to talk about faith as a feeling, as intellectual knowledge, and finally as a way of life. And so first as a feeling, and I was talking about trust, when we say I believe in God, We don't just mean that we believe he exists. We believe in him. We trust him. I I believe in my wife. When I say that, I don't mean I believe she exists. Obviously, she does. I mean that I trust her. I trust her with my life. I trust her more than myself, to be honest. That's what I mean by the first meaning of faith, to trust And that is what we are expressing when we come forward to receive the precious body and blood of Christ. We trust God that he's going to be good. He's going to be good to us. The second meaning of faith is intellectual knowledge, spiritual knowledge, content of knowledge about God. And we express this in the prayer that we say right before we come up to receive communion. We say, I believe and confess that you are truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first. That is the intellectual and spiritual expression of what we believe. Furthermore, we say, and I believe and confess that this which I'm about to receive is truly your most precious body and truly your life-giving blood. Again, this is what we believe is happening in Holy Communion. This is an intellectual and heartfelt spiritual confession of what we believe reality to be. We don't understand it or explain it, but we do believe it. And I will remind you of the short poem which I've read several times from the pulpit from antiquity. His were the words that spake it. His were the hands that break it. And what the Lord doth make it, 
I believe and take it. Now the third meaning of faith is the faith. What I mean by that is everything we do and say and live in this world is an expression of our orthodox faith. In other words, the orthodox faith is a way of life. It's a way of living. It's not just intellectual. In orthodoxy, you know, in the secular world, you hear, you've ever heard the phrase, keep the faith? That used to be back in the 60s and 70s, you know, keep the faith. Nobody knew, really knew what that meant, but it sounded really cool, like, keep the faith, buddy. Well, in our secular culture, that could mean anything, you know? <laughs> But when we say keep the faith in orthodoxy, we know exactly what we mean. We want to keep the faith. In secular culture, that phrase really means nothing, but it comes down to each person's exertion of their own individual will and desire. Whatever you're into, whatever you think, that's, that's the faith for you. It's not so in orthodoxy. And our journey in this world, our struggle in this world, is basically a struggle between orthodoxy and secularism. Orthodoxy means struggling against the passions. All those sins, those troubles, those things, the spiritual illnesses that afflict all of us. Struggling against them. That's what orthodoxy is about. Secularism means giving yourself over to the passions. Just going at them, giving them, giving to yourself to pride, to vainglory, to self-fulfillment through uh, sexual sin, uh, food and drink, uh, all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of entertainment. Just giving yourself over to it. That's what secularism is about. In other words, secularism is the what we call the world in the sense of the cosmos, the forces of the world. Now, secularism has been at war with the church from the very beginning and has attacked the church historically through direct persecution, first by the pagans and the Jews in the early centuries, then later by the Turks or the Muslims, by the heterodox, Roman Catholic Church and other non-Orthodox groups. But more, and more recently, in the, in the 20th century, through communism. All these are different expressions of the world at war against the church. In America, Europe, and other places, however, the war has been waged in a more subtle and devious way. Not by direct persecution, although that is starting to happen, especially as accelerated in the last couple years, but rather by infiltration and the weakening of the inner moral and spiritual life of the church. So really what the secular world says to us, especially in the West, in, in America, in Europe, and other Western cultures, it says, the secular world says, okay, keep your faith, but just keep it to yourself. 
In other words, don't make it relevant in the culture. You can have your faith, you can believe what you want, but just don't, don't make it cause any ripples in the culture. In other words, they are saying, we don't care what you believe as long as you don't express it in the culture and suggest that others need to believe it as well. And this is a very strong pressure, and it's intensified the last couple years, especially with this last political election season. It was just with big tech, social media, everybody just piled on this theme and really, really doubled down on it. And the church, many churches have capitulated already. Now this subtle assault on the church began primarily in America in the 1960s with the sexual revolution and has come to full full fruition in the beginning of this, the 21st century. I'll give you a couple of examples of what I mean by this. I, I do a lot of, I'm really into gardening. Sometimes in the garden, you'll have a really huge weed that you want to get rid of. And you bend over and you start to pull, and it just doesn't want to give. It's got deep roots. It's really embedded itself in your garden. Well, I've learned over the years, okay, you want to get the big guy, you just start picking at the little things around it. Get the weeds that are around the big weed, just kind of pull them up. Gradually, you're starting to loosen the soil and breaking down the fabric that's in the soil above these roots. And finally, you get all those little weeds out, and then you just grab that big one and just kind of go out. Another example is uh, one time my my wife, who I, I trust completely, of course, decided she wanted me to move a bush. We had a lilac bush or a rose of Sharon or something that she didn't like where it was. So she asked me to move So I get my pickup truck and my tow chain out and I put it around the base of the bush and hook it up to the back of the truck and start to move and feel it tugging and tugging and it's not going out. I mean, it's, it's dating. So what did I do? Well, I got my shovel out, I dug a little trench around the bush, and I got my garden hose and stuck it down the trench, and I, about a whole day, I just let it water run. Totally saturated that ground with water. By the time I got done with that, little Jacob there probably could have pulled it out by hand. I hooked up my pickup truck to it with a tow chain, started to move, and it just... Pulled right out, dragged it over to where I needed to move it. Those are two good examples of what I mean by this uh, insidious attack on the church from within and in a subtle way. You start with the little things, seemingly insignificant things, small tea traditions, and you start just getting rid of those. Or you saturate whatever institution you're trying to destroy, whether it be a college, a government, a church, a family. You you saturate it with information from the other side. And this, this, you know, I, you know, I, I, um, 
and bivocational. And in my secular work, I do appliance repairs. I'm in people's homes all the time. How many homes where the TV is on 24-7, just constantly pumping out information from the world side, just constantly. So we see this as, as, a, as a tactic of just saturating the institution of the church with this worldliness so that it can be undermined. Little by little, the world wants to strip away all exterior expressions of piety. All exterior expressions of piety. You know, iconoclasm is the tearing down of icons. The church early in in the 7th century dealt with this issue of whether or not icons should be in the churches. And eventually the icons were restored in orthodoxy. But in Western culture, iconography prevailed, or the iconoclast prevailed. So most Protestant churches and even a lot of Roman Catholic churches are fairly barren of outward expressions of piety. I want to give you two examples of of what I mean by this. And this is going to offend, offend some people, including myself, but that's okay. That's part of being an Orthodox Christian is being able to accept uh, correction and to be humble, to repent. So I have noticed that when I am wearing my clerical garb, my cassock, in public, which I don't wear as often as I should because, I, like I said, I have a secular job, so I'm so, mu- so much out in the world uh, looking like everybody else, so to speak. But occasionally, on a Sunday or some other time, I'll have my cassock on. I've noticed that when I go into Walmart or Kroger or whatever, that people look at me differently. <laughs> some people probably want, think maybe it's Halloween or something. But other people, actually, they, they show respect. They, they kind of nod towards me or bow or, or they say, hello, Father. I've even had people come ask me for blessing, especially Roman Catholic and a lot of Hispanic people. And I've even had people ask me to pray for them out in, in the store. So that's one example. Clerical garb, that is something that has been stripped away from the clergy in America and Western culture so that the pastors are just blend in. You know, they don't stick out. The other example is is the the practice of women covering their heads in church. That used to be a universal practice in Christendom, not only in Orthodoxy or in the Roman Catholic Church, but even in Protestant churches. So those are two physical Expressions, outward expressions of piety. The cassock is like a shock wave in the pool of life. It shouts out to the world that when, when a person with a cassock walks into a business place, it shouts out to the world, there is more to the world than what you see. There is a spiritual dynamic to the world. There are morals, there are right, there is right and wrong. And that's what it says. And that's why the world doesn't want to see it. 
They don't want to hear that message. And just, just the fact of looking like that is an affront to the world. You know, I, some, I wonder, and I, I have thought seriously about this, on the day of judgment, when I stand before God, will he ask me why I did not wear my cassock more and stand for him in the public square? And why I did not work harder to be able to become a, a quote, full-time priest, you know, who didn't have to do a secular job. <clears throat> so that's something I have to deal with. The world wants the clergy to simply blend in and be unnoticed and irrelevant. And the world does not want preachers preaching about these issues in churches either. They would want us to just keep it simple, talk about love, and love is love, and so to speak. Same is true of a woman's head covering. <clears throat> well, early on in our life as a mission parish, one, one time we had a woman, very wonderful, uh, dear person, but she's, she was Greek Orthodox. She was visiting our church and, and um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the women uh, was putting on her scarf or said she had forgot her scarf or something. And, and the lady said, oh, we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> she informed her that that wasn't necessary anymore. And this lady never again covered her head in church. Even though occasionally I, I would mention it or speak, it in, speak about it in a sermon, I would ne never directly confronted her, but I just talked about it. The world says about cassocks and head coverings, what silly, outdated, impractical practices. It doesn't matter what's on the outside. All that matters is what is on the inside. Well, let's look at what we have come to as a nation, both on the inside and the outside. We see pride, egoism, self-will, self-centeredness, Disrespect for authority, a blurring of the line between male and female, disdain for procreation, neglect of children, the breakdown of marriage, and a host of other evils. What is the head covering? St. Paul says it is a symbol of authority. People who do knitting know how losing a single stitch can unravel the whole project. Start pulling and it comes loose and then you can just keep pulling and pulling and pulling yarn until you have nothing left. And so it is with something so simple as my, me not wearing my cassock or a woman not covering her head. So I have picked on myself for not wearing my cassock and women for not wearing head coverings, just to make it fair. But the point is really that all of us should approach the Orthodox faith with humility and repentance, looking at every aspect of our lives, asking God to shape us into holy, authentic, and sincere representatives of his church in this world. So my children in Christ, as we approach the holy chalice today, 
Let us have faith by first trusting God, secondly, believing in the real presence in Holy Communion of His precious body and blood, and thirdly, by committing ourselves to be truly orthodox in every aspect of our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has descended.